Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. And all for one. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. We have a very cool announcement to make to start today's episode. Two weeks ago, we crossed an important milestone in our podcasting journey as we recorded our 50,000th total listen. This is a pretty exciting achievement for me, and I just wanted to thank all of you for listening to the show, and especially to all of you who have shared the show or gave the show a rating to help get us here. I am very grateful and cannot thank you all enough. With that achievement in mind, I thought about doing a special episode to explore the origins of calling an achievement a milestone. Unfortunately, it's not a very long story and is basically exactly what you would expect it to be. The ancient Romans built a sophisticated road system to assist in transportation across their vast empire. One tool that helped the usefulness of the roads were stone markers that were placed along the road approximately every mile. This way, the people traveling along the road, especially the army, would know exactly how far they had traveled that day. All mile markers were measured from a central golden mile marker in the city of Rome, and generally are believed to have been set up with an ancient machine known as the odometer, which received its name from the Greek. Based on mile markers that do survive, these stones were placed fairly accurately. After the stones were placed, a milestone became a visible symbol for how far someone had traveled on their journey. From there, milestones naturally found its way into everyday vernacular and came to symbolize a benchmark on someone's journey both to a destination and towards success. That is why we call the smaller achievements we hit along the way to a larger achievement milestones. Quite interesting, but also rather short. A couple weeks back, I visited New York to take in the Broadway shows A Lifespan of a Fact and Network. Both wonderful, by the way. I stayed at a hotel in the financial district, so between traveling to the theater district, the airport, the hotel, Forest Hills, and everywhere else, I spent quite a bit of time riding the subway. Subway journeys are somewhat dull, and before I knew it, my mind had wandered back to the first time I visited the Big Apple. I was a wide-eyed 10-year-old taking in his first trip on an underground transportation system. I was excited and I listened to every word that came out of that garbled speaker box that the conductors make announcements through. I heard the conductor call out the stops one by one, Franklin Street, Canal Street, and then a strange one to my ear, Houston Street. I looked at the map and was expecting Houston Street. It was spelled the same and I had only ever heard the word pronounced that way. At first I thought maybe I heard the conductor wrong, but I heard a couple other people refer to Houston as well. I asked my mom, but it was her first time in New York as well, so she did not know how to say it either. I just chalked it up to a strange New York accent and left it at that. On my most recent trip, I realized I never looked up why Houston, New York is pronounced differently from Houston, Texas. As such, I figured today's episode was the perfect time to solve that mystery. The place to begin our story today is with one Sam Houston. Samuel Houston was born on March 2nd, 1793 in the state of Virginia. He would grow to be a giant of a man at six and a half feet, but his personality and fame would grow much larger. In 1806, his father died after a series of bad investments, and the following year his mother sold the family farm and moved Sam along with his five brothers and three sisters to Tennessee where the land was cheaper. Tennessee today is your fairly typical southern state, 
But back in 1807, it was the American frontier, having only been admitted into the Union in 1796 and still containing a sizable Native American population in which some of the tribes were occasionally hostile. Houston was never close to his siblings and hated working on both the family farm and in the family store. The plus side of working at the family store was that Houston was able to read books from his father's library of classical books and meet the local Cherokees who were some of the store's main clientele. At the age of 16, Houston decided he had had enough of the store and ran away to join the tribe. He was accepted in the tribe, and over the next three years, he learned the language and custom of the Cherokees, but more importantly, he met and was adopted by the leader of the Cherokees, Uluteka. Uluteka was also known as John Jolly and as Ahuludegi. In 1812, Houston left the tribe in order to join the military as war erupted. The War of 1812 pitted the Americans and their Cherokee allies against the British and the Cherokees' principal rivals, the Red Stick Creeks. Houston would fight bravely in the war and would famously be wounded in battle. Doctors first thought mortally, but he defied the odds and survived. Houston's brave stand earned him the attention of one of the commanding officers, Andrew Jackson. Jackson was a man on the rise, and a mentor-mentee relationship developed between the two that would help propel Houston's career forward. Jackson was impressed by Houston's bravery, and after learning of his connection with the Allied Cherokees, decided to appoint Houston as the military sub-agent to the tribe. Houston served in that capacity for a time, but after an 1818 delegation to Secretary of State John C. Calhoun, ended in a heated disagreement, Houston resigned the post and returned to Tennessee. Once back, he studied law and briefly worked as an attorney before he was appointed by the governor of Tennessee to the rank of major general in the Tennessee militia. His formal political career began when he was elected to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives in 1823, then won re-election in 1825. Houston is sometimes framed as a hot-headed and headstrong individual, This could sound like attributes that one would not want an elected official, but most early 19th century Americans loved Houston for it. While serving in the U.S. House of Representatives, Houston found himself in a convoluted disagreement with General William A. White, and the two ended up dueling with pistols. Houston's shot would strike White in the ribs before ricocheting off the bone and ending up lodged in the man's side. The bullet removal was fairly straightforward, and the wound turned out to be mostly superficial. The duel was closely followed and widely reported by the press of the day. It helped turn Houston into a bit of a celebrity. Duels were on their long way out as states attempted to crack down on them, but the common person still largely loved hearing about duels. It was an opportune time for Houston to receive so much press as he was in the midst of running for the governor of the state of Tennessee. The duel had taken place in the state of Kentucky, and law enforcement attempted to bring charges of attempted murder against Houston, and even sent an extradition order to the state of Tennessee. The extradition became a campaign item debated about by the candidates, obviously Houston argued against it, so the outgoing governor decided to sit on the order and let whoever won the race decide how to proceed. Sam Houston won the election handedly, partially due to the support of Jackson and his newly forming Jacksonian Democrats partially from his past reputation as a military man and representative, and partially from his fame from the duel. You will not be surprised to learn that one of his first actions as governor was denying the extradition order, and the charges in Kentucky against him were soon dropped. A somewhat complicated series of events occurred next that has little to do with our story, so I will just provide the result. 
Houston and his first wife were divorced. Houston resigned as governor of Tennessee and moved to the Arkansas Territory. His adopted father, Uluteka, had previously moved to Arkansas and been elected chief of the Cherokee Nation West back in 1819. Houston would formally join the tribe and receive the name Black Raven. During his years with the Cherokees, he married his second wife, a Cherokee woman named Tiana Rogers. Houston would return to politics as part of a Cherokee delegation to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Andrew Jackson. Many suspected that Houston's goal for joining this delegation was actually to receive permission from Jackson to move to Tejas, and soon Houston was the talk of Washington. In a speech in Congress, Houston was even accused of a fraud that, based on sources available, he did not commit. When Houston ran into his accuser on Capitol Hill, he beat the man bloody with his cane. Congress would hold a trial over the tax, as members of Congress were supposed to be free from reprisals of things they said during session. Regardless of how the trial went in the House, Houston won the case in the court of public opinion, and his reputation only grew. The people of America loved Sam Houston, and soon enough, Houston would be heading to Texas. At this time, Texas was still part of the Mexican state of Tejas y Coahuila. At the time of Houston's birth, Mexico was part of the Viceroyalty of New Spain. In 1810, Mexico declared their independence from Spain, then for the next 11 years fought and won their War of Independence. Independence was not quite the boon for the northern outlying portions of the new Mexican nation that it was for the centralized regions. The outlying regions like Tejas were sparsely populated and most Mexican citizens had no want or need to move out of the more prosperous central region. Economic collapse or stagnation followed for the regions as the Spanish pulled out and Mexico did not yet have the infrastructure to vitalize the areas. With the Spanish gone, the Tejano, descendants of the original Spanish-speaking settlers in Tejas, had almost no trade partners and so few people meant that the Mexican government were unable to defend the large areas from the hostile native tribes who often raided the small settlements. An attempted solution was to invite immigration into the region from new streams of people, especially targeting Americans. This allowed the government to continue taxing the region, but also hoping that more people would bring stability. Immigration skyrocketed, and soon the Anglophone inhabitants of Tejas far outnumbered the Tejanos. After Mexico won their independence, Tejas was organized as a province of Mexico, but with the independence won, the Mexican government decided it was time to reorganize and establish their post-war government. In 1824, a new constitution was drafted and ratified, which established Mexico officially as the United Mexican States. Under the new constitution, the small in population but large in area province of Tejas was joined to the neighboring province of Coahuila to form a new state called Coahuila y Tejas, with the capital in the Coahuila portion of the state. While Tejas had still been under control of Spain, a colonial mission had been sold to the American businessman Moses Austin. Before Moses had had the chance to move to Mexico, Spain had lost the war and Mexico was free. Moses had then passed away himself and left the land claim to his son, Stephen F. Austin. Mexican authorities were at first unsure of how to proceed with this land grant, but after Austin traveled to Mexico City and pled his case, the government chose to recognize the claim. Austin was then allowed to move to Tejas and bring with him 300 American families, who came to be known as the Old 300, to settle a region along the Brazos River. Austin will eventually earn the title of the Father of Texas, and after the Republic of Texas had won their independence from Mexico, the new nation would found a city, 
name it after him, and still to this day the city of Austin is the state capital of Texas. Austin, the old 300, and all of the other new settlers of Teos y Coahuila worked very hard to establish a successful new territory. As you might expect, the incoming Americans never shed their American identity, nor were they particularly Mexican patriots the way all the people who had just fought for their independence from Spain had been. Taxes remained relatively high. The central government of Mexico did little to defend the settlers from native raids, and the federal government of Mexico continued to consolidate power into a more centralized state that the Americans just did not trust. This meant that tensions between the state of Coahuila y Tejas and the Mexican government was usually quite palpable. This was exacerbated by the Americans paying little to no attention to Mexican law. For instance, Mexico had instituted a policy of gradually freeing slaves after their independence, and in 1829 officially abolished slavery. The Americans who moved to Texas were largely of the Southern American variety, so I'm sure you can imagine their reaction to a government abolishing slavery. In order to combat this hostile tide, the government of Mexico passed the law of April 6, 1830, that prohibited further immigration from America. This was met by fierce opposition, and just two years later, the Battle of Valesco in June of 1832 became the first incidence of violence between the two opponents. The Texans, as the Anglo settlers of Teos had come to be known, expelled the Mexican troops from the state and called on the government to ease the laws of April 6th. It was during this early violent period that friends of Sam Houston, who lived in Tejas, wrote to him to convince Sam to come to Tejas and aid their struggle. As described, Houston would first travel to Washington, D.C. to seek permission from Jackson, and then headed to Texas, where he would arrive in December of 1832. Tensions were still high between Tejas and the central government, but we have not yet reached the revolt part of the Texan independence story. Unrelated to the Texan situation, the central government of Mexico was dealing with a more internal rebellion that saw an ouster of the elected president and the installation of a more centralist regime. The government's turn away from the Federalist policies of the Constitution of 1824 angered many, but sometimes might does equal right. Unwilling to drive Tejas further toward revolt after their coup, the new regime softened the regulations in Tejas and allowed the Americans continued access to the territory. Sam Houston was one of the Americans who took advantage of the new policy and purchased land in Nacogdoches. Houston quickly established himself as a leader in Tejas. He was elected to the Texas Convention of 1833 that met and decided to petition the Mexican government for statehood, a petition that would separate them from Coahuila and lead to more independent rule. Austin was sent to the capital with the petition and, long story short, was unable to come to an agreement with the current president. Shortly after, the military strongman Antonio López de Santa Ana assumed the presidency. His ascension also marked a new period in Mexican history that saw the president inherit new and farther-reaching powers. One of the actions Santa Ana took with those new powers was to imprison Austin. He threatened Tejas with military action if they kept defying the centralized government. In response, Tejas formed several small militias throughout the state, and Houston was elected to command his local militia. The town of Gonzales was a quintessential example of the tension between Tejas and Mexico. In 1831, the Mexican government had assigned a cannon to the town so that the town's militia could use it for defense in the event of a Comanche raid. After Austin had petitioned for statehood and conflict between the state and federal government was starting to appear inevitable, it started to seem like that Mexican cannon would soon be aimed at Mexican troops. 
So in September 1835, Mexican troops in the area requested the cannon be returned. The town of Gonzales first made excuses for why the cannon could not be returned, but once they were pressed, the town outright refused to part ways with their best line of defense. The local militia started to gather in the town, and soon a skirmish broke out between the militia and the small Mexican army unit in the area. Several shots were exchanged between the two groups, and the Mexican force decided to retreat without the cannon. The altercation was labeled as the Battle of Gonzales of October 2, 1835. The battle on its own would be fairly inconsequential, but what happened next is what has labeled it as the official beginning of the Texas Revolution. In the lead-up to the Battle of Gonzales, the Texans had held elections for delegates to send to another convention that planned to again formally petition the Mexican government for changes to the rights and privileges of their inhabitants. Houston was again elected and prepared to meet his fellow delegates when news of the Battle of Gonzales started to spread through Texas. What was going to be the Convention of 1835 took on new significance in the wake of military escalation. The delegates, instead of forming a convention, chose to establish themselves as the Provisional Government of Texas and became known as the Consultation. The Consultation's first demand was for the Federal Government of Mexico to revert back to the Constitution of 1824. Ever since the rebellion had brought people like Santa Ana into power, the government had moved away from the Constitution and towards a centralist government. The Texans did not want to live under centralist rule and knew that continuing to do so would only hinder the rights and privileges that they had come to expect in life. Santa Ana's response showed the Texans a simple petition would not force him to relinquish his near-dictatorial powers. It became clear to the Texans that the time had come to dig in and resist these changes with force. Austin had returned from his prior imprisonment in time to become the de facto leader of the consultation and planning committee. However, after the Battle of Gonzales, a siege had started and Austin was elected the Volunteer Army's commander. As Austin served in that capacity, he was unable to join the consultation when they met to determine next steps. His letter had helped sway some to not immediately declare independence, but his absence did weaken the peace party. He likely would have won the governor role in the general council that was formed from the consultation to govern the state during the wartime if he had been in attendance and said he was only a member of the general council. After the general council was formed, Sam Houston was elected to lead the regular army of Texas and Austin resigned his command as the siege ended. Austin was not much of a military man. As Mark Stein put it, Austin's brilliance was in creating, not destroying. With his command resigned, Austin joined the General Council and for the remainder of the war focused on the political side of events. Houston's command of the regular army did not give him command of the volunteer troops. For many Texans, it made far more sense to join the volunteers, so Houston had some difficulty recruiting for his army and spent much of the next few months preparing for the quote-unquote invasion as Santa Ana had resolved to lead the federal troops into Mexico himself. Small skirmishes and little battles followed as the two sides tested each other's resolve. Forts were gained or lost, and the volunteer army largely did what they wanted to rather than listening to a unified message. As the months and battles wore on, it became clear that Mexico would never revert back to the governance of the Constitution of 1824, and if the Texans wanted their version of liberty, it would only be as a free nation. It also did not help that the General Council had become entirely ineffectual as infighting completely froze their way forward. Houston and the other delegates called for another general convention. 
On March 2nd, 1836, Houston's 43rd birthday, and the second day of the Convention of 1836, the delegates declared their independence and the Republic of Texas was officially established after the Convention finished drafting a new constitution. Two days later, Houston was appointed commander of all Texan forces, and he finally had the authority to really fight the war. Little did Houston and the other delegates know, however, that while they met to decide the fate of the state, a desperate defense against a siege was being held at a small mission near San Antonio called the Alamo. The Alamo held strategic significance due to its location near San Antonio and the artillery it held inside its walls. Many of the defenses, though, had recently been stripped and it was not the stronghold it once had been. Somewhere between 182 to 260 Texans held the Alamo. Reports seem to indicate that prior to Houston being given overall command of the army, he had called for the Alamo to be abandoned as it was feared that the mission could no longer be properly defended. For whatever reason, the commanders chose not to heed this call for retreat and instead dug in at the mission as Santa Ana approached with a force numbering somewhere from 1,500 to 1,800 regular soldiers. Santa Ana placed the mission under siege. Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis, and based on that name, you know he was brave, good-looking, and a great soldier, of the Texan forces held overall command of the Alamo, and he refused to surrender his forces to Santa Ana. He instead sent calls for assistance to the general population and to the general council. He famously penned a letter commonly known as the Victory or Death Letter that helped solidify the resolve of the Texan people against the supposed tyranny of Santa Ana. The most urgent plea for assistance with information about the siege did not reach the convention until March the 8th. Houston gathered a small force of around 50 men and met up with a nearby militia of 400 men in Gonzales. He then began the march towards San Antonio and the Alamo with the intent to lift the siege. Little did they know at the time, but Santa Ana had ordered the final assault on the Alamo two days prior and the Battle of the Alamo was over on March 6, 1836. After the first two attempts to take the mission were repelled, it was the third time the charm for the Mexican forces. Travis died in the attack, as did the likes of Davy Crockett, who was said to have been the last Texan fighting outside the walls of the Alamo, and even after he ran out of bullets, started using his gun as a club. The Mexican forces kept advancing, and based on reports, eventually only seven or eight Texans remained alive in the Alamo. They attempted to surrender, but Santa Ana ordered their summary executions, and they were shot dead. William Travis had become a national hero due to his letters that were published for the state to read in the weeks leading up to the attack. One in particular was titled Victory or Death, and the final sentence reads thus, The enemy is receiving reinforcements daily, and will no doubt increase to three or four thousand in four or five days. If this call is neglected, I am determined to sustain myself as long as possible and die like a soldier who never forgets what is due to his own honor and that of his country. Victory or death. The deaths of Travis and Davy Crockett in particular were reported widely. Santa Anna expected that the complete defeat of the Texan forces would deflate the Texan cause. The reports of Santa Anna's brutality had the exact opposite effect by turning Travis, Crockett, and all the other Alamo soldiers into martyrs for the cause. Soon, every Texan who could carry a rifle was joined in the military, or so the story goes. Santa Anna offered Houston peace after the battle with a general amnesty for all those involved if they came back to Mexico and obeyed his laws. Houston replied thus, 
true, sir. You have succeeded in killing some of our brave men, but the Texans are not yet conquered. Houston spent the next six weeks avoiding combat with Santa Ana as he allowed his militia to swell with new recruits. It was during this time period that Houston made sure that, like Travis, never forgot his due, Texas would never forget his sacrifice. The battle cry became, Remember the Alamo! Houston's force of approximately 450 men ballooned to almost 800 when they finally engaged the numerically still superior Santa Ana in the Battle of San Jacinto. The battle looked bad at first, but the Texans turned the tide and won, capturing many Mexican forces. The real victory waited for the next day. The Mexican forces had broken and retreated during the battle, with Santa Ana fleeing from the field. The day after the battle, on April 22, 1836, the Texans captured Santa Ana. Many called for his immediate execution, but Houston knew that despite capturing Santa Ana, the Texans were still the underdogs in their fight for independence. Instead of shooting Santa Ana dead, as he had done to the troops at the Alamo, Houston decided to negotiate with Santa Ana. Santa Ana agreed to send his entire army out of Texas if Houston spared his life. Less than a month later, on May 14th, Santa Ana signed the Treaty of Valesco, recognizing Texan independence. Some would later claim that this treaty was signed under duress and therefore not legal, but the opposition never materialized in a way that matters. The victory made Houston a hero to all Texans, and he parlayed this hero status into an election victory months later in October of 1836, when he became the second overall but first elected president of the Republic of Texas. Most lists count him as the first president of the Republic of Texas, as his predecessor was only the interim president. After Texas's official independence in May, but before the election in October, the Allen brothers bought and founded a small town. The brothers proposed to name the town after whoever was the first elected president of Texas and provide a capital building in exchange for the Republic of Texas naming the town the new country's capital. The Republic of Texas agreed and the population of the town skyrocketed from 12 at the beginning of 1837 to over 1,500 by the time Congress convened in May. The town was officially incorporated a month later on June 5, 1837, and though it only remained the capital for two years, Houston has not stopped growing. Today it is the largest city in Texas and the fourth largest in the United States in terms of population. That is the story of how Houston, Texas received its name. Texas would go on to be annexed by the United States and Sam Houston would receive the honor of being the only American to be elected governor of two different states. His fame continued to grow for the rest of his life and it is fair to say that he is one of the more famous Americans of the 19th century. Houston also boasts a city and a county in the state of Minnesota named after him, along with a pretty sizable list of other areas. His fame, along with the recognition of the city of Houston, is why tourists sometimes get confused about the name of Houston Street, New York, which actually predates Houston, Texas. Let's explore that story to discover the difference. The Bayard family has been a prominent family in the Americas since the 1600s. Peter Stuyvesant married Judith Bayard in 1645. Peter was appointed as Director General of New Netherland and officially took the position in 1647. Judith's brother Samuel Bayard married Peter's sister Anna back in 1638 and the couple had a child together. Samuel passed away in 1647 so Anna decided to take her son and follow her brother to New Netherland. Peter would become a very important figure in the early history of New York due to this post as he served in the position for 17 years and purchased a large tract of land in New Amsterdam. 
1664, the British captured New Amsterdam and renamed it New York. Peter remained in the city and continued to own the land, even as the British population moved into their new settlement. Peter primarily lived on his farm after the British had taken over, and his farm was named the Bowerige. Anglicanized, this sounds more like the Bowery. It is this farm that provided the name for Bowery Street in New York, and the neighborhood the Bowery is in the location of Peter's old farm. The New York Park and Borough Stuyvesant Square is also named for Peter Stuyvesant. Well, rather his great-great-grandson, Peter Gerard Stuyvesant. The cast-iron fence that surrounds Stuyvesant Square was built in 1847 and is today the oldest cast-iron fence still standing in all of New York. The child of Anna and Samuel that I briefly mentioned was named Nicholas Bayard, and he was born in 1644. He would grow to become the 16th mayor of New York from 1685 to 1686. Similar to his uncle Peter, he would come to own a large area of land on Manhattan. The Bayards would create several streets and buildings throughout their little area of New York, but most of them have been renamed or built over. Bayard Street still exists and connects to Bowery Street. It only runs for about four blocks, though. Nicholas's great-granddaughter was named Mary Bayard, and she was born in 1760. In her adulthood, she met and married a man from a Scottish aristocrat family who had moved to Georgia. The two met while the man served in the Third Continental Congress, sometimes referred to as the Confederation Congress, which was the government of the United States from 1781 to 1789, and which met in New York from 1785 to 1789. Mary Bayard and the man married in 1788. The man was named William Houston, spelled H-O-U-S-T-O-U-N. William Houston was born in 1755 in Savannah, Georgia. His family had several high officials in the colony, and 20 years later, when the American Revolution broke out, many remained faithful to the crown. William was unlike his family, as he believed in a colonist's rights and was a vocal supporter of resistance to British aggression. His family's name made him one of the first Georgian voices to be heard on the subjects. After the United States had gained their independence from Britain, Houston served as a Georgia delegate to the Continental Congress from 1783 through 1786. It was in that time that he met Mary Bayard. In 1787, Houston was one of the members of the Georgia delegation to the Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention would produce the U.S. Constitution, Unfortunately for Houston, he would only stay for a short time and would not be one of the original people to sign the document. After he left, he would get married in 1788. In celebration of the marriage, Nicholas Bayard III would cut a new street through his tract of land and name it after his new son-in-law. It became Houston Street. The city of New York would later extend this street to include North Street, which was the northern boundary of New York's east side in the 19th century. That boundary is how Houston Street came to be known as the northern boundary of a neighborhood in New York. New Yorkers started to refer to that neighborhood as South of Houston Street, or Soho for short. It has also been suggested that Soho was an homage to the London neighborhood of the same name, with Houston Street providing an easy explanation. Houston Street is referred to with the original spelling of the name until at least an 1811 official map of the New York street grid. It is unknown exactly when or why the U dropped out of the official spelling of the street. Some suggest that the fame and popularity of Sam Houston that we already discussed made people think they were spelled the same, even if they were pronounced differently. 
Other theories say that the second U is just another casualty of American English departing from British English in a similar way to, say, the word color. It also could be that as less Scottish Houstons were about, people just started spelling it in the more familiar spelling of Houston. Whichever way it happened, the spelling changed, but the pronunciation never did. And that is why Houston Street, New York, is pronounced differently from Houston, Texas, despite the same spelling. Okay, that does it for this week. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode of the Why Is That podcast. If you did, please remember to hit that subscribe button so you can listen again in two weeks. The show can be found on all major podcast applications such as Acast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podcast Republic, Podbean, iHeartRadio, and wherever else podcasts are streamed. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Why Is That podcast. Cheers.